Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I don't know if it's because of the holiday weekend in the U.S. this week or just all the things going on in my world, personal and professional, but I was really in my head about doing this episode today. I honestly have spent way too much time thinking about an outline and creating two different outlines and trying to figure out, do I talk about what I think I should talk about or not? And now I'm pretty much at the deadline where my editors need this episode. So (laughs) this is me just doing it. But I don't usually share that kind of behind the scenes, but I hope that it's helpful for you in this instance. I'm always in my head. I'm always second guessing myself. I think that's part of being a fraud fighter. We want to do things well. We want to think things through. We want to be intentional and detailed and all of that. But at the same time, there's just a lot going on on this topic. And so here was kind of where my head was at. I felt like I needed to do a follow-up episode to last Thursday's episode. And actually this kind of, if we really look at the grand scheme of things, it kind of goes together with the last three or four episodes, actually, where talking about chargebacks, talking about first party slash friendly fraud. And it just kind of happened that way because I started out a few Thursdays ago just answering questions about first party fraud in relation to a webinar I did with Uri Arad at Identic for MRC. At that point, I had no idea that Visa was going to make a big announcement regarding friendly fraud or first party fraud chargebacks. As things have progressed, I've been trying to like keep up with that because as they've made a very big announcement that has caused me to get a lot of questions to facilitate merchant collaboration calls where this is a topic and just a lot of conversation around it. And I did provide a little bit of a high level overview of what I understood the rules to be at the time last Thursday, but I didn't have all the answers and I still don't, but I have a lot more answers than I did last week. And I do feel like because people are really confused that this is important information to get out. My hesitancy was around like, is this one too many chargeback episodes in a row? I don't, you know, yes, the open joke is that this is Carice's favorite topic and I have owned that. But at the same time, this podcast is called Fraudology, not Chargebackology. So there's that. However, fraud leads to chargebacks and chargebacks also contribute to losses to card not present merchants, whether it's true fraud or not. So it, I know it's all things that the majority of you listening care about and have questions about because I've received a lot. And I do feel like although I still have a couple questions and I will say that when I don't know something 100% and, you know, Visa hasn't really released the detailed or small print for these changes yet. So I'm going off of what they provided in not one, but two webinars. I also listened to the public webinar earlier this week. And then I'm also going off of some conversations I've had with other people that really know chargebacks well that are in the chargeback industry, as well as online merchants that are large enough to have direct conversations with Visa. So I do feel like I've done my homework. But you know, I I hesitate to even provide my own take on these rules because nobody wants to upset a card brand. I certainly don't. But I feel like at the same time, I was reminded by a good friend and fellow fraud fighter that this is an important and timely topic with a lot of confusion surrounding it. And they reminded me just the importance of having an independent voice that doesn't have a financial relationship with the card brand and doesn't just kind of provide a third party's perspective on this from the outside looking in for the most part. I've also, chargebacks have been a very big part of my career for the past like 18 years. So I feel like I know them pretty well. And, you know, I've also spoken to several dozen enterprise merchants about this news in the last two weeks, and they've asked me to be their voice, which is no pressure at all. But They've said, hey, we have questions about this. We have issues with this. We don't know if this is going to solve our problems. 
We don't know who else to ask because we don't all have a direct line to visa. Some do, some don't. And so that's kind of where I'm at. But I do want to say again on this episode that I would love to have a rep from Visa on Fraudology to talk publicly about this and to correct any misconceptions in this episode and also answer the merchant questions. I have a long list of questions people have asked about this and that I have myself. I will mention them when we come across them in this outline, but at the same time, I'm sure there will be more coming out. This always happens whenever there is a new announcement or a change in the ecosystem. It's not just around chargeback rules. It's around everything from, I mean, when EMV was first coming out, there were a lot of questions on that. When there's been any kind of changes around, I mean, when the Durban rules came out in the U.S. around interchange, I'm trying to think of all the other times that this happens. An entity that regulates or has its own rules for its own payment system or governance or whatever will provide a decree or a rule change. But then there's all these practical questions about like, how do we actually do this in every day? Another example is GDPR or CCPB, the California Consumer Protection Act or CC. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I think you know what I'm trying to say there. There's been lots of questions on that as well. And I think throughout my career, I've tried to give the answers. And so that's what I'm trying to do on this episode today. And I hope that it is well received and understood that I'm trying to just provide a public service. This has no, I really don't have a ton of skin in the game, although I do advise companies on chargeback reduction and, and this will impact that. And I also provide chargeback training and that will, some of the tech's going to have to change. But other than being a merchant at heart and working with so many enterprise merchants, I don't have skin in the game. I'm literally at their party just looking at this. So <laughs> have I provided enough of, I don't know, a disclaimer for this, <laughs> but you know, like I said, there are so many questions. There's lots of confusion on this. And one of the merchants said it best to, they were like, I feel like I have more questions on this because it was billed as such a big gift to the merchants. This was billed as we're, we understand and we recognize that first party fraud chargebacks have gotten out of control, that there are a lot of people claiming that their card was stolen when it wasn't. That was said at the beginning of both webinars by Visa. That was also said in the public. I don't know if it was actually a press release, but there was a public announcement that came out from Visa as well as the Merchant Risk Council stating that this was really big change that will help merchants in this way. And that was kind of their announcement about the announcement. So they were announcing their upcoming webinars to get more information. So because it was billed in that way, there's just a lot more confusion because people are like, well, I think I understand this, but that doesn't line up with what was promised. And that's just what I'm hearing from the industry. And that kind of explains why there's more confusion, because I think there's also just a lot of self-doubt when it comes to chargebacks. There's a lot of people that are like, it's really confusing and I get that. I mean, I've said many times that if I didn't start out on the payment processing side where I received six weeks of training on chargebacks and the technical side of payment processing and interchange and all of that, if I didn't have that as a foundation, I wouldn't know half of the things I know about chargebacks. So I really have empathy for people trying to figure them out and they don't totally make sense and they aren't very fair and all of that. So that's why... You know, I think that this has just been extra confusing for people. So here are the biggest impacts. There's two that I'm going to focus on. There is a third rule change that does impact recurring and subscription merchants specifically. And that actually puts a little more onus on the issuers to ask more questions of their cardholders before actually issuing chargebacks, which I applaud. I said that on last week's episode. So I really do think that that's great, but that's not what we're going to focus on as much right now because that doesn't impact as many companies as these other two. The other two impact every card not present merchant out there. So that's anyone that's accepting online payments, mobile pay, or payments through either your native app or your mobile browser. It's including you know, phone orders, anything where the credit card isn't present. So that's why we're going to focus on these two main changes. So the first one is around how you can dispute chargebacks. This is specific to the fraud reason code chargebacks, often they're 10.4 in Visa. And again, this is just for Visa and the rules don't go into place until April of 2023. However, this is something that needs to be planned for in advance. And I'll explain that in a minute. So currently, when you receive a fraud chargeback, and if you are 
are able to look at the evidence that you have and you're able to say, wait, we did a full fraud analysis on this at the time of the transaction. And we believed that this cardholder was the one placing the order. And here's why. Some examples of proof of showing, well, no, the cardholder made this purchase, not somebody who stole the cardholder's card. Or you were able to start providing what's called compelling evidence since 2013. Fun fact, I was working at the Merchant Risk Council at the time, and I got to work with Visa very closely in announcing that. It was really exciting, and it gave great benefit to a lot of merchants, especially digital goods merchants, because up until that time, really, it was either a signed sales draft, which doesn't exist in online commerce that you were able to dispute a fraud chargeback with, or signed proof of delivery. Even then, it wasn't always accepted. That's something that companies that provide travel or event tickets or online gaming just weren't able to provide. So this that was a great change. And since then, merchants were able to provide a pretty large list of compelling evidence. So the ones that I usually focus on the most because they're the most convincing are that the same card was used on the account and for the cardholder in the past with no previous chargebacks attached. There was no time frame on this, but most cards are only around for a few years, maybe four to six years. So it was in that time frame. But there's a lot of cases where good customers only come back here and there, right? I don't shop at every website that I have an account with or that my card is on file with regularly. Uh, if I did, my bank account would even be lower than it is. So that was very allowed and fine, right? If you had, wait, the cardholder placed an order last year on the same card with the same information, the same email, the same IP, the same shipping address, that was very convincing. As well as outside verification and information from fraud providers proving that the cardholder made the purchase. So I have worked with merchants to provide a screenshot of the case management system that they work out of for fraud, you know, about that transaction, right? Why is this not risky? Why does it look like the cardholder made the purchase? That has all been allowed. Has been social media links and pictures to prove either that the person that the cardholder sent the item to or that used the gift card or whatever the item being disputed is, was somebody that the cardholder knew. So oftentimes I'm digging back from long ago in my Expedia days, and I know you heard Dom and I talk about that a lot on Tuesday's episode, but one thing that we would do is look up the email address used to make the purchase. We'd put it into Facebook. We would see, oh, there's a profile for this cardholder, and this profile has been open since for several years. That tells me that this is probably the person making the purchase. Oh, and one of their connections is the person that received the electronic gift card. Or one of their connections is the person who was shipped that expensive electronics item around the holidays. So we were with the compelling evidence rules in 2013, we were able to provide those screenshots or that information to say, hey, look, this shows that the cardholder made the purchase. Additionally, you know, just gave the ability to show the issuer that the merchant did all that they could to verify that the person ordering the item was the cardholder. And that's really what's at question for that fraud reason code. So we know, and I've said this many times, but I'm just reminding everyone on this episode that over the last several years, actually last 11 years, to be exact, the fraud reason code has kind of become a catch-all. You can no longer rely on it and say, okay, that is for sure fraud because it's the consumer's word for it. It's the consumer and or the issuer who are starting the process. There's really not any investigation on their side. There's not a lot of checks and balances to make sure that they really didn't issue the card. And especially as the economy continues to go down, this is where we're going to see people continue to be liar buyers or have buyer's remorse or whatever term you want to call it. So we're seeing this go up right now as well. However, beginning in April 2023, Visa is changing what's acceptable for compelling evidence. Not totally. So from what I understand, and I've conferred with people within the chargeback industry that have, you know, direct relationships with Visa and other people closer to them, closer to the sun almost, is that you can still use the compelling evidence of before, but there's no guarantee that you will win. The only way that you can win or reverse a fraud reason code chargeback or the words of Visa receive chargeback liability shift, so the issuer has to cover it, is if the merchant 
can prove, let's see, I just want to get this right. If the merchant can provide details of two previous transactions on the same card and either have the same IP and or device consistent on all three or more purchases, the previous purchases can't have chargebacks or disputes associated. So that's a little bit more than before. Before this, within compelling evidence rules, it's just one, at least one transaction on that card previously, no time frame with no disputes. This is the same, except for there is a massive time frame and there are, you have to have three transactions. You have to have two previous ones in the four months leading up to the transaction that's being disputed. And it has to be within 120 days. So it has to be within four months. That brings up a lot of questions. And in talking with lots of different companies, they feel like this doesn't apply to them. They feel like this isn't like, we're just not going to win any chargebacks then, I guess, which not super happy about. But for instance, event ticketing and travel companies, there's a company that only provides festival tickets or tickets to county fairs. They're like, nobody comes back within four months. They purchase one and then that's it, like in a year. Same with concerts, same with travel. Oftentimes people, the transaction date will be a couple of months before the actual date of travel. And by the time that person is wanting to book more travel, it's going to be further down the road unless they're a super traveler, which in that case, they'd probably just contact the merchant if they're an online travel agency because they don't want their account to be shut down or they don't want there to be any issues. And they know how to contact the customer service. It really won't apply so, to subscription merchants. So the way subscription merchants are set up with the transactions, the IP and device is only transmitted on that first transaction. The customer isn't initiating those other transactions. So there isn't IP or device attached to those transactions. So that it's not really going to count. Also, most other merchants like retailers, for example, are starting to look at their data and preliminary findings are that most, if not all of their chargebacks that they've assessed and looked at and weren't true fraud and where they can really prove where the cardholder made the purchase are new customers making those purchases. I had one merchant say, the customers who come back, the only people that this is going to apply to is loyal customers, people that continually purchase just from us within a four month time frame, more than three times or more. And those people know how to get a hold of our customer service. Those people don't issue friendly fraud chargebacks on the regular. There might be a very small, like, outlying set, but not thoroughly. So these are all things people are starting to look at and wondering how much this will really apply to them. And one thing that merchants keep saying is that they invest so much money into transaction monitoring systems, to fraud prevention systems, and device ID and behavioral analytics and all of this to really prevent true fraud. And of course, there are going to be some true fraud chargebacks that come through. There really isn't and probably never will be a technology that says this person is who they say they are. They're using their own card. But in 30, 60, 90 days, they're going to call their bank and say that they didn't. Or they're going to call their bank and ask what was this purchase for? And their bank is going to initiate a chargeback because that's all that they really can do. That's the only action they can do. And I mean, they can file a retrieval request, but most don't. And on top of that, the fraud reason code is the easiest one for the call center to file. So therefore, we know it's a mixed bag. I have I know I've said this before, but in case you forgot or in case this is one of your first times listening, Whenever I'm doing analysis for e-commerce merchants, and this can be often are very large companies, but in very different verticals, looking at just their fraud reason code and trying to deduce how much true fraud is in this and how much first party fraud is in this. And oftentimes the first party fraud is between 40 and 60 percent of the overall fraud reason code bucket. So we're not talking about like 20% of your within that reason code. It's about half. Now, it varies on a lot of factors based on the type of merchant and the average order and all kinds of things. But that's pretty consistent. 40 to 60 is honestly going to be chargebacks where the cardholder participated in the transaction. So here's a few additional issues that have been pointed out by merchants. Similar to what I just said about they invest so much money in trying to determine and when they do feel like, okay, this is the cardholder making the transaction, they pass it because they believe, well, 
if the cardholder comes back and says that they didn't, we have enough proof. Our fraud provider really helped us understand that this is the person using the card. I mean, there's so many different providers that look at different things, whether it's machine learning or rules, or they're looking at the data and verifying that this cardholder has used the same email address, address, and phone for the last six years or whatever that is. Those are all key indicators. So once you feel good about that, you pass the transaction and you think if we get a charge back on that, we'll be able to find it with compelling evidence. I think the challenge is right now that although Visa is saying that you can still provide the previously allowed compelling evidence, the concern with everyone I'm talking to is if issuers, if the bar is being raised high for liability, are issuers going to accept other forms of compelling evidence? Or because they don't want to take the liability, they don't want to pay their customer or have to have that conversation, then are they going to just default to you didn't have more than three transactions in 120 days on the same card with no previous chargebacks. Therefore, we're going to second time everything. We're going to send everything as a second time. And then I think, you know, it's going to be up to merchants, but maybe you're going to want to use the arbitration process more. So I forgot I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that and clarified why there are some additional issues being asked about. So some merchants have stated or have started to approve or deny purchases based on chargeback propensity. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. So while every merchant does a fraud review and decides, okay, I can confirm that this cardholder is making the purchase because they made previous purchases because of this, because of that, whatever, pass it through. There are additional merchants who are starting to add chargeback propensity where they're saying, if a chargeback were to come back on this, can we fight it? And if they can't, they're declining it. This is going to throw a huge monkey wrench in that. Because honestly, if you are looking at it from that place of we're only going to pass transactions that we can properly dispute and have a very good chance of winning on the back end, if they become chargebacks, well, that's what like every one of your new customers and that's going to inhibit business. That's going to really, I'm, it's not even an option, but that would make the sales significantly lower and impact e-commerce, marketplaces, and all others that depend on credit cards, but also going to impact everyone in the ecosystem because whenever merchants authorize credit cards or whenever merchants charge a credit card, the issuing bank that the credit card was placed on and that card brand and others and the acquirer and others in the within the transaction are benefiting from interchange and other fees. So really we need commerce to make everyone happy in this ecosystem. But here we are, that would be inhibitive and not even be worth questioning. So now you have this gray area where merchants are like, we can confirm that the cardholder used the card, but if they come back with a card with a chargeback, are we going to be able to win it? I don't know. So that's something that people are really questioning and talking about. I think the people I've talked to, at least, and I, I would say that this would be my expectation as well, are expecting much lower win rates for their card not present channels on first party fraud chargebacks. And that has a significant financial loss to e-commerce companies, especially because there's really, again, there's no gating factor. There's no factor that says you have to meet this, this, and this in order to claim fraud on the upfront. So anyone can issue any cheapest chargebacks they want. And then it's supposed to kind of self-govern with the response back. But if it doesn't apply to a great deal of orders, that's a challenge. I do know that on at least the first, epi or the first episode, sorry, the first webinar that Visa did with the Merchant Rest Council, they did say that they recognize this is a very high bar and that they're trying to work towards others, but that the issuers were very firm on wanting that 120-day limit. I can only guess why. <laughs> but so they at least recognize that and I appreciate that. But I still think this is just a really big challenge. And for those that don't understand chargebacks, they may not understand the impact until long past the rule change. And I'm just going to say this other thing. These rules do nothing to add accountability to issuers on chargeback legitimacy or reason code selection. I have joked that more than a couple times I have as told Visa people or people that worked for Visa, and this is several years ago when I had a relationship with some of them, but I would say like the biggest thing I want is issuer accountability on reason codes because right now the fraud reason code is the easiest one to file. Therefore, it's becoming the catch-all. That's not fair. So at least with 
compelling evidence, we were able to say, well, and if you selected fraud, even if you meant to, even if the customer's claiming something else, I can prove the cardholder made that purchase through compelling evidence. So at least I'll win. But with this, it's kind of up in the air. I really don't know if issuers are going to continue to have the same, allow the same evidence with this bar being lifted much higher. So honestly, no doubt the Fraud Reason Code 10.4 has become a catch-all for everything, especially, you know, with the high bar for liability shift. Why wouldn't issuers file fraud chargebacks over any other reason code since there's now... There's no more document requirements for them. There hasn't been since 2011. And there's really no recourse for merchants. So not only are people worried that this is going to impact their win rate, they're worried that this is going to increase frauderies and code chargebacks too. And I don't have the answers to those. These are just kind of open questions that online merchants have. And there's a lot of these things that we may not know until it goes into effect. If it if and when it goes into effect. I mean, the plan is April 2023. So I think we just all need to plan like this is what's happening. I, I did mention last week that typically Visa and MasterCard don't really release their rules until October for the following April. And this is very like out of step with them to announce it so early. I think there could be a few different theories on why. One of the reasons they provided on one of the webinars, at least, was that they wanted to allow merchants time to get their data in order for the second half of the rule changes. But that's that's just kind of, it's hard to know. But that, it, so it is different. So we do have extra time. So we can do what we can to prepare. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So here's a few more questions that came from merchants. And I know that, you know, unless you're somebody from Visa listening to this, you may not have the answers, but I think that hearing other people's questions can kind of help you think things through and think about if you have other questions. And I also know that some of you do have a direct relationship with Visa or have a direct relationship with your acquirer who works closely with Visa. So maybe should you find out any of the answers to these questions, I'd love to hear it. But right now we obviously have more questions than answers, but Here's a few of them. So if the biggest common thread between these three transactions on the same card is that the IP and device have to be the same or IP or device have to be the same throughout all three transactions. And one person asked about like, does it matter because there's so many different device providers out there and they tokenize things differently so it might look different. And Visa's response was that's not as important to them as the consistency. So they're not going to be necessarily looking up the device number because they may not know which provider you use for device. But they just want to see that the same device placed those three orders in a row within four months. So one merchant asked, what about mobile transaction? Like with the use case of you make the first purchase on your PC, on your home IP address, and then your second purchase is on your mobile phone using a data plan outside of your home. Now you're not going to have the same device or the same IP, but it was still the same person. So how do we prove that? Additionally, dynamic IP and, and or VPNs are becoming more common with good users as there's more privacy concerns and security concerns out there. And VPN providers are very good at advertising on other podcasts. <laughs> so another question, will this even protect a victim of account takeover? They mentioned on the MRC webinar that issuers said that they wanted these stipulations to have the same IP and same device to prevent victims of account takeover from losing fraud chargebacks. But that would work if brute force and or credential stuffing were still the main methods of account takeover for fraudsters. However, as we've mentioned a few times on this podcast in previous episodes, the more sophisticated fraudsters are not messing with credential stuffing. They're going straight to malware. So sending out phishing emails via malware. And then once the malware is installed in devices, anytime there's a login page, all of that information gets sent to the host, not just username and password. It's now the entire session data. It's cookie, it's device, it's browser language, it's browser version, it's IP, everything. Allowing fraudsters, so usually they'll package that up 
and then monetize that and sell it to somebody who is going to monetize that even more. And so, or if it's organized crime ring, they may have just the separate departments doing this, but then they'll go monetize that and they will log in. They will use an emulator and they will log in as the customer. And on your end, most of the time, it looks like the exact same IP and or the exact same device. So with these new stipulations on chargebacks, I'm concerned that it isn't even going to protect the card holders as much as it could because they're going to be able to make it look like the cardholder made the purchase when really they didn't. And granted, the fraudster's purpose isn't to get away with a chargeback. The fraudster's main focus is to get through all of your fraud prevention tools because they know that we are getting smarter and that we have access to more things. And credential stuffing was not being as successful for them. And so they've now gone to phishing emails, which provide malware. Malware that provides the session details of every single login from banks to websites, etc. And then using emulators to look just like the person. And in fact, there's one kind of malware that starts with a U. And I know all this from Q6 Cyber, so I'm not claiming to be this technical or this security focused. But this particular malware, which comes out of Eastern Europe, allows the bad actors to log into the user's accounts on their own device without the user even knowing. So then you're really screwed, right? How do you show that the cardholder really made the purchase if somebody else just logged into their account on their device and made, the, I mean, granted that one is going to be hard to fight no matter what with compelling evidence. So I'll give you that, but just saying like, this is where we're moving towards. Fraud is no longer, you know, the same as it was a few years ago. We are well beyond that with emulators now. They're trying to look like the real person so that they can get their order accepted, especially on high dollar transactions, especially on high risk transactions, electronics, anything resellable. So that's something to consider as well. And then another merchant who kind of made me laugh, he more than once was thinking of any way to get around all of it, but had a, one of the questions was fairly, it made, I thought it was acceptable. I mean, I thought that it was a reasonable question to ask. How are merchants going to be held accountable for submitting accurate IP and device information for chargebacks, especially if you're not checking it with a specific device provider? How are you going to know or how is the issuer going to know that that really is the device that the cardholder logged in on? Granted, the issuer and the card brand can check and see if there was there were previous transactions on that card on your merchant ID, so you can't fit that. But if there were three transactions, could you hypothetically just copy paste device or IP? I am not in any way advocating for that. This is simply just a question. And I think anyone who's in fraud fighting knows that we have to think like the bad guys in order to figure out how to get around them and past them. So unfortunately, Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. 
and that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. This is a symptom of that. So at this point, a lot of people are asking, what do we do right now? Like, what can we do? I will say that, you know, Visa's main answer or, or solution on their webinar is to sign up for their own product, which is Order Insight. And I'll be talking about that next. Already, I can tell this is going to be a longer episode than I wanted it to be. But I also want it to be thorough so that I can literally just point people back to this episode and so that I don't have to talk about chargebacks for another episode in a row. Granted, if any new information comes up or if any corrections are made, I will absolutely provide that in an intro in a future episode. But other than that, I want it all comprehensive in one place so I can just point people there and, you know, for this to be a resource to you and your teams as well. So in addition to Visa's suggestion of signing up for Order Insight, here are some other things that I feel like you could do at this point. One thing that some large companies are doing right now is they're pulling data on all of their fraud chargebacks. Oftentimes three months is a good set, sample set, depending on your volume. If you just have tens of thousands of chargebacks, maybe do one month. But within that fraud reason code, how many of those chargebacks had two previous transactions on the same IP or device within 120 days. How many of these could you fight with pure liability shift? Other type of compelling evidence is completely a gray area right now, and it's going to depend on the issuer. So just looking at the highest bar, what percentage of those fraud chargebacks that you fought last month or in the last three months, the criteria to fight it? after April 2023 without any chargebacks on those transactions, by the way. If the percentage is low, provide this feedback to Visa or your, you know, if you have a direct relationship with them, to your acquirer, to an advocating group, get that together. Maybe this is something that they, I legitimately don't know how many merchants they tested this on, or I know that oftentimes with rule changes, they'll seek feedback from their partners, partner vendors, and ask them to circulate it with their merchant customers. They'll often provide it to acquirers and ask them to kind of, you know, circulate it and kind of gut check it and see if this is something applicable. Because Visa doesn't have the information of how many have the same IP or device. They don't, I mean, unless they're looking at 3D Secure, but that's a whole other liability shift and differences, etc. So I don't know. Hopefully, and I'm sure they did, they always usually do work with large merchants ahead of time to say, hey, how much is this going to impact you? I haven't talked to any that have worked with them. I've tried to track down a couple, but they said they haven't been asked, but that doesn't mean anything. I have not had time to talk to every single merchant in my Rolodex and certainly not every single merchant in the enterprise realm. So, or every person that works at every merchant either. So I don't know, but I would love to know that answer. If someone at Visa can tell me that, we did a test and 70% of all chargebacks that weren't true fraud, like they met this criteria, I'll shut my apper. You know, I'm good with that. <laughs> but I just don't know, right? So I think checking your own data is the first place you can do. I am always going to say to dive into root cause analytics and data. Work to reduce your incoming chargebacks holistically as much as you can before April. That is not me advertising my consulting services. That is me saying that is the best way to reduce your chargebacks without a continual charge month to month. If you use a third-party chargeback provider, ask them what changes to their processes they're making to prepare and ask them how they think this is going to impact your chargebacks. They probably know your chargebacks and what they consist of, etc. probably more than you do if they're providing responses to each one so that that can be a good resource for you. If you pay your chargeback provider per dispute versus percentage of one chargebacks, ensure that they're only replying to what may be one with compelling evidence, especially like post April 2023, because there is a chance for more second time chargebacks, which means more second time chargeback fees, as well as an accounting nightmare with back and forth and all of that. So that's something to check on. Make sure they're not going to be replying to all of them when it appears that there's a lesser chance of having them reversed. And then if you pay your chargeback with a percentage, I am always going to say this, but I'll say it again. Make sure that they are counting a win correctly and that they are charging you when a second time chargeback is not received within 30 days after the first time chargeback, that they are not taking that fee 
as a percentage of the transaction when you receive a first time win, because that really doesn't mean anything. It does not mean that you get to keep the money is what I'm saying. So that'll always be my PSA. I feel like I'll be saying that like in 50 years when I'm in the old folks home or something. So, you know, I think my biggest concern and, and my biggest question, and I kind of said this already, but like, I just don't understand why they're not approaching the issue from the root and from the beginning, which is when those fraud chargebacks are being filed. They're doing so for recurring billing. They're requiring the issuers to ensure that the customers did reach out to the merchant or went through their account and canceled their subscription and then only filing a chargeback if they canceled it with the merchant and they still got charged. So they are putting some accountability on that reason code. So I'm just very confused as to why there's not more accountability on this other one. There really isn't a lot of recourse for merchants if you're restricting even more what they can do to respond to prove that the cardholder made the purchase. So again, these are just my open questions. I would absolutely love for someone from Visa to publicly you know, join me on the podcast, or even if they couldn't, if they could just speak on background and then I can provide some you know information to my audience, that would just be helpful as well. I do not think I know all the answers, but I do think I understand this enough to ask some pretty decent questions. Now that leads us to the second biggest change in announcement. And I kind of inferred it a few minutes ago, but Visa has said that the solution to reducing invalid first-party chargebacks is to enroll in their product Order Insight. A little bit of background, Order Insight was a product created by Verify, which was its own independent solution provider or vendor in the space. They were purchased by Visa about two years ago. So Order Insight is now Visa's tool. Visa had their own that was similar to Order Insight, but it was called VMPI. And I think I'm going to say that's Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry. That is off the top of my head. So if I got that right, I need to be on Jeopardy or something, <laughs> but only if all of the categories are online fraud and payments related. <laughs> so basically the Order Insight and VMPI, so they're being rolled into one, are, is a real-time API. So there are some questions out, is this constitute as a real-time retrieval request or not? I think for a lot of banks it does. That's not, I don't know. I don't know how many people listening to this would even understand why I'm asking that question. So I'll just skip ahead. I put a little question mark there, but I'm like, eh that there is such thing as too many details and getting too confused. But so it's at the time the customer contacts the issuer. So oftentimes it's when the customer calls over phone. I don't know how it works if the customer clicks within their online banking app or within their online banking web app or portal where they're able to click to file a dispute. I don't know if it works there, but I just the main use case I know is customer calls the bank and says, what did they purchase at? XYZ merchant. The issuer doesn't have any idea. They just see how much you bought, when you bought it, the merchant ID, the name, like just basic stuff. Everything you see on your statement, that's all the issuer sees. So with Order Insight, if the issuer is using it and the merchant is using it, the issuer can initiate an API call out to the merchant. The merchant has already pre-selected which fields they're going to fill out and send back to issuers when they request this information. And the hope is that when the customer hears, oh, okay, I purchased this. It was sent to this address on this date. And I've had previous orders here. Whatever the information is that the merchant decides to provide back to the issuing bank, the goal is to have the cardholder remember that transaction. Now, obviously, there is a chance that that is still very much fraud and will still be submitted as a chargeback. But that's in a very short nutshell. I am not a product expert, so please contact someone at Verify or a reseller for the product for more information on this. This is the high-level understanding that I have. If the cardholder doesn't dispute the chargeback or dispute further, then the chargeback is deflected. If the cardholder does provide a dispute, it appears as if after April of 2023, if the merchant's enrolled in Order Insight, that the merchant receives chargeback liability protection. So the visa slides, as well as in the webinar, stated that the only way to get a liability shift on fraud chargebacks besides 3D Secure is to be enrolled in Order Insight and participate. So that is what I'm basing that off of. If that is different, if what is implied is you use Order Insight and therefore you won't get a chargeback, 
that to me is very different than chargeback liability. So that's why I'm saying it that way. Again, write that down as something to ask someone else if you have connections to be able to do that. These are all open questions I hope to have answers to. And when and if I do, promise to provide updates on because I understand this impacts your jobs. It's really impacts your 2023 planning and your budgets. This impacts a lot of things. So I really get that. As mentioned last week, the primary um, fee structure for chargeback deflection, so Order Insight is what they consider a pre-dispute alert. So it's an alert that the merchant's receiving before a dispute is even issued. If a chargeback or a dispute is not issued after that phone call, then often then the merchant is charged a chargeback deflection fee. I've gotten a little more clarity on this. It actually can range from 10 to 30% of the transaction amount depending on the order value. So obviously there's going to be a higher percentage if your average order is smaller versus a smaller percentage if your average order value is higher. But there's a sliding fee structure there. I'm not getting into the weeds on that. In addition to those deflection fees, you're also being charged inquiry fees, which can often range from 50 cents to a dollar. And there's five different types of API calls or inquiries. So even if the customer calls and they get this information from the API that says, this is what you bought, this is where you bought it, this is where you sent it, et cetera, then you're still going to be charged an inquiry fee. And they're relatively small, but they can add up. That's the fee structure right now. If you are signed up for post-dispute alerts, that's after a chargeback has been filed and you're given a short window between the time that the chargeback is filed by the customer to the issuer and the time that your acquirer updates you because it has to go through the issuer for a couple of days and the acquirer, et cetera. So you have that window of time, but if you are receiving post-dispute alerts, the only action you can do to avoid a chargeback is to issue a full refund on that transaction. You don't get to fight it. You don't get a pass go. You don't get to do anything else. You just refund it and you're done. Oftentimes people will refund it and then mark it as fraud in their fraud system, but that's totally separate from all of this. Um, so pre-dispute alerts is what they're talking about here. Some of the challenges are really around aligning data sources so that the API can provide the right information, not just because different data lives different places, but also some of the data that's being requested isn't necessarily readily available in various data storage places within merchants. It really varies on what kind of data merchants have based on the type of company they are. Were they technology first? Were they online first or digital first, as others call it? Or did, were they traditional retail trying to catch up? What vertical are they in? What type of information are they have? Where is their data going to be stored? How many resources do they have internally to even try to wrangle all of this data together to be able to feed into this API? It's not necessarily standard data that other providers need, like for fraud prevention and others, because you are not saying this is what people are providing us with order. You're saying this is all the order information after it was confirmed and after it was delivered upon. So data access points, and that can be a real challenge and expense to the merchant because the merchant is the one footing the bill, obviously, for internal resources to wrangle the data together, get it in one place, have it set up with the API, implement the API, et cetera. So every, I feel like a lot of service providers are like, oh, an API is easy. It's like, yeah, but do you know all the steps that merchants have to do internally? Sometimes they have to involve someone from product and they have to wait for a resource to be assigned to them. Sometimes they have to wait months for engineering resources because so many other departments take precedent over fraud prevention and chargebacks. There's just a lot of real world stuff that you don't realize unless you've been a merchant yourself. The cost of Order Insight is often too expensive for many card not present merchants, especially if they are low margin, high risk. I explained this in full detail last week with examples and everything. I highly recommend going back and listening to that if you're not sure what I'm talking about, but marketplaces, merchant of record, business models, travel companies, online travel agencies, event ticketing companies, they all operate on a razor thin margin. They only get a couple dollars per transaction, but obviously if a chargeback comes in, they're liable for that full amount. So it might be a $200 transaction, but they only may have made like four or $5 on that, on that transaction. When a chargeback comes, in a lot of cases for marketplaces and merchant of record business models, they can actually deduct that full amount of the chargeback from their sub-merchant, from the, the company that provided that a service or good. 
So if you're in marketplace, I'm talking about sellers. If you're, you know, merchant of record, it's the other merchants below. But when it comes to chargeback deflection, there's not anything in their contracts about clawing that back. And so that can be a challenge as well. In a lot of cases, at least up until now, where it's not mandated, but it's highly incentivized that they will just say, no, I'm not going to, I can't pay for that because, or I can't even think about that because we don't even, we'd have to get our legal involved or rewrite the contracts that if we deflect a chargeback, we can deduct 30%. Other merchants are like, do we just write it off and we have to take that loss, even though we only made a few dollars on that original transaction? One merchant said, well, I can just tell my sub merchants it was a chargeback and then I can keep the 70%. And I was like, yeah, we don't have the same, <laughs> the same moral compass, I don't think. And I also, knowing him, I'm pretty sure he was being sarcastic. But again, it's our job to think around the edges and how to get around things. So this is this is sometimes what comes up on merchant calls. So a couple really good questions came out of this discussion as well when talking about it with a few different merchants. I talked about it with two of my collaboration calls as well as a few one-on-one -on -one calls over the last week or so. One merchant, and I was really impressed because I hadn't thought of this yet, and that doesn't mean, wow, if I don't think something gets impressive, I just was like, you are so right. I should have thought of that. Their question was, what about vigilante cardholders? If you're a fraud fighter and have ever talked to a cardholder on the phone, chances are more than a few times you've had somebody say, where is it? Why can't, you know, or where did they ship it to? Who did this? I want to know where they live. And I know at least for me, we were always told by legal that we weren't allowed to say. We were not allowed to say where that package was delivered or where the address was changed for the credit card or anything like that because of liability purposes. We would be, we as the merchant would be liable if we were the ones that said, oh, this person who stole your credit card had things shipped at this address and that cardholder happened to go there, whether it was local or not, and did something damaging or violent, we would be liable. That was the way I understood it. And I know other people who have had their identities stolen and had all their mail shifted to another address. And in order to move your mail back, you have to say what the old address was. So they'll get a police report, they'll ask for it, and they won't give the victims that information because of privacy. And I get that because, again, I have talked to some very angry cardholders that I am pretty sure if they got the address and if they were able, they would have showed up on a doorstep with a baseball bat, like the way they sounded anyway. So this was a really good point by a merchant. So if the cardholder calls and their credit card was actually stolen and the merchant's using Order Insight and the API comes back with where the item was shipped and the person on the issuing side may or may not know that this was true fraud, right? Who knows? The cardholder may just call and say, hey, what did I order here? Because maybe they don't realize it was fraud yet. And the customer service rep says, oh, it was shipped at 123 South Main in the same city as you. Wait a second, what? That's where my ex-boyfriend lives. Or, oh, I don't know that person, but I'm going to go find out. I mean, that's, who has the liability for that? Like, that's kind of scary. So the question really was like, what's stopping a vigilante cardholder from getting this information through Order Insight from carrying out their own form of justice? Also secondary legally, and I have no clue because I'm not a lawyer, but who's going to take the liability for that if something actually does happen? I know that in a lot of cases, cardholders feel like we're protecting the the bad actor by not giving that information, but it's also protecting ourselves as well as them from doing something irrational. So this may have totally been something that was thought through. I just, I didn't hear anything about it. And so I thought it was an interesting point. I'm sure it was thought through because Order Insight isn't a new product. It's just new to being heavily incentivized to use by merchants in this way by a card brand because the card brand didn't own this product up until a couple of years ago. There was a pandemic in between, so I'm sure that this was probably, this may have been something that's been talked about for a while. So another open question or issue on the MRC webinar, a merchant asked about issuer participation in Order Insight. They said, you know, are more issuers going to participate in Order Insight than they are now because of this, I don't want to call it a mandate, but it's a carrot for sure. It's an incentive. The response was that 100% of issuers have been mandated to implement Order Insight on their side. To me, that inferred that participation is close to 100% at this point, because I think they said they were mandated a couple years ago, so by now they should all be up and running. However, in speaking with the companies that are currently enrolled in Order Insight and or VMPI, they say that's not what they're seeing at all. 
And again, this is just what I'm hearing from other people, but they know their stuff and they know their data. So one example of a company using it now, less than 10% of all their chargebacks qualified for or went through order insight. So the merchant was enrolled, but less than 10% of all chargebacks went through that. Now you could say, well, I mean, what's the breakdown of the rest of their reason codes? Because the only chargebacks that go through order insight are fraud reason codes. So it's completely possible that that's the case, but this is just what they had said. So out of the 10% where issuers were participating in Order Insight and there was a response back through the API, less than 25% were actually deflected. So of that 10% of chargebacks, only 25% of those were actually chargebacks that were avoided. The other 75% came through. Now, if what Visa is saying about a chargeback liability is the case, then maybe post April 2023, if you do this, then you might get that 75% of 10% written off as liability shift. I, again, I'm just don't, that's the one piece I don't feel confident on. There are some, some theories and some talk about it, but I just, I don't want to be, that's a big thing to get wrong. And I really don't want to. So the example that this person gave or that really I took from it was if a merchant has a thousand total chargebacks a month that and a hundred go through order insight, because that would be 10% of the total, only 25 chargebacks would be deflected out of that. So out of a thousand chargebacks, only 25 would be deflected and 75 would have gone through order insight, but still turned it into a dispute. So that's, you know, the fees on that are 100 inquiry fees. And then about 20, 25 of those would be because that was what the merchant said there or that the, they said was it was between 20 and 25 was what they were getting back of that 10%. So only that much would be would have the 10 to 30% deflection. So on that note, I mean, at least when you're looking at issuer participation, maybe the fees for order insight wouldn't be that much. However, then the question is, if issuers aren't making an effort to enroll in this, how is it worth all the internal expense for merchants to enroll in it as well? It's probably a chicken and an egg thing. I would assume that Visa is telling issuers, hey, we are heavily incentivizing CMP merchants to enroll in this. So we really suggest that you do that. And maybe that's the reason for the liability shift. Maybe it's similar to 3D Secure where they're trying to incentivize issuers to join. I don't know that for sure, but that is a possibility. There are some theories on why Visa is pushing this product so hard, even providing possible liability shifts when it's used. And I'm not going to share those theories. These are, I think fraud fighters are inherently skeptical. I'm sure that a lot of you have already thought of these things. And I don't have enough facts to fully say one way or another what their reasoning was for doing this. I know that they said it was to reduce friendly fraud chargebacks. I just, with the information we have right now, I don't see how that's possible. I see how it's possible to lose more friendly fraud chargebacks and let cardholders get away with it. And I see how, you know, enrolling in pre-alerts or pre-dispute alerts could potentially reduce incoming numbers, but not if there isn't a huge issue or participation on it, not if a lot of the fraud reason code chargebacks are already going through order insight. It just, you know, I don't know what the incentive, again, I don't know what the incentive is for issuers to participate in it, or even if they do have it up and running for their call center employees to know to initiate that call. I don't know any of the training on that side. I just know what companies who are using it are telling me is that it's really not impacting them that much. It's really not a lift. It's not as much as they expected. It's not as much as they hoped. And I just thought it was interesting that Visa was very you know, specific in saying that 100% of issuers are mandated to participate. I realized that after the fact, after I talked to the merchant, and they said, it's really low participation. And I said, what do you mean? And they told me, I was like, oh, that's why they said they were mandated, but they didn't say they were enrolled. At least that's, that's how my memory is. But again, I mean, I know that everybody's trying to do the best they can. I said this on the last episode, I'm going to say it again. I know that the team that was assigned to this issue, this problem, these rules are doing the best they can. They have a lot of competing interests to balance from issuers and cardholders to acquirers and merchants to their own. So there's just a lot of things to consider, but I just can't help but think that turning the faucet down a little bit and not allowing as many fraud reason code chargebacks in the system, I just, I really can't, I want somebody to tell me why that can't be the answer. <laughs> then I'll let it go, maybe. <laughs>
So, you know, it really, I do wonder if this is a conflict of interest with Visa pushing their product so much as, as really the main solution that they're providing for this. When they're the governing entity over chargebacks and they're the ones who are in control of deciding how they can be reversed by merchants, when they can be filed, all of those things, without a lot of onus on the issuers for filing excessive or illegitimate chargebacks that merchants could not have known or seen any warning signs of fraud. It just feels like the only solution they're providing is their own, which has an additional cost. I think if Order Insight was being offered for free, this would be a totally different conversation and topic. They will ultimately benefit from the sales of Order Insight and the pre-dispute alerts and the post-dispute alerts as they do already through Verify, through the acquisition of Verify. So I think that's it, guys. I'm trying to make sure. Oh my gosh, no, I still have two more pages. Holy cow. Okay, I really... And I did two outlines. I did a totally separate outline on a different topic as well. So if my brain sounds like it's mush, that's why. But what can merchants do about this? When that question was posed by Visa on the public webinar about what they could do, they only provided one answer. I think I mentioned that already to sign up. But I think there's, and then they said the other thing you could do to prepare is to work on streamlining and kind of wrangling your data sources so that historical transactions are available to send via the API. I would assume that that's probably the most challenging information to provide. That's not something that merchants really expert out of their system in batches or even you know in real time not after the fact with all the community all the information there's really no purpose for it so this is something they probably would have to build themselves and so that's what they said that merchants could do to prepare my suggestions again talk to your acquirers and and or visa reps if you have direct contact with them for clarity on the order insight liability factor i they said it has full liability i just again when it comes to an important topic like this i don't want to get it wrong you can consider 3d secure 2.0 for additional liability on fraud chargebacks i mean it has its own set of issues and is also a visa product through their acquisition of cardinal commerce but that is an option if you currently work with a chargeback vendor ask them about order insight chances are they're a reseller ask if they think it will provide enough value to make the data organization and api integration worth it for you it's also going to really depend on the vertical that you're in for a lot of purposes on if it makes sense or not so they would be the right ones because they'll know your chargeback volume your reason codes etc they can tell you how many of last month's chargebacks or they should be able anyways to tell you how many of last month's chargebacks probably would have qualified for order insight like based on the bin number they should be able to know what issuers participate and you know which ones at least would qualify for it they definitely wouldn't be able to tell you how many you could deflect from that unless they have like a, a kind of a common percentage that they see across all their merchants but ask questions to your partners participate in opportunities to ask visa representatives questions about these changes sometimes visa reps are at conferences that we attend sometimes there they have open forums especially with large merchants maybe that's an opportunity to ask about this and then lastly and again this is not meant at all as self-promotion but i always want to help and so whenever there's an issue that's impacting a lot of merchants i think well what can i do to help and sometimes it's to my detriment because then i want to create so many things and not everything gets finished or really carried out or finished in the way that i want it to doing the best i can over here as a solopreneur but i've been asked to create a masterclass for merchants to learn the method and the process that I discussed with Dom on Tuesday's episode and then I put in place for Expedia and Etsy and a few other very big brands. Both of those were about 10 years ago. There are a lot of other brands that I still can't talk about under NDA, but those are two of them. And so right now I provide the method and the training one-on-one -on -one with companies, but in this case, there were a few merchants that said, if you provided it in a masterclass or in a group training like you did for refund fraud, then it would probably cost a little less and it would. So that is something that if I have enough interest, I'll provide for you know, a lower fee to a group of merchants than I would to a solo merchant. That is honestly probably all I have bandwidth for anyway. I, I may not be able to work with other merchants on building this out and doing this themselves or doing this for them anyways. 
over the next several months, but I could teach a class. So that's one thing I'm offering. There will be a fee, but I always try to make them nominal for merchants. And especially if you're a big ticket merchant, it probably would just be the cost of a couple of chargebacks. And I think it would help. It's just more holistic, right? It doesn't depend on programs and alerts. Those can definitely be deployed if your ratio is getting out of whack, but that's just, anyway, that is one option for this. I think in closing, I just want to say, I mean, gosh, if you're still listening after an hour, I appreciate it. I hope this was helpful. I really tried to provide like a deep dive, just brain dump. I may thinking about creating this into a webinar. I'm just not sure. A couple of people have asked, but I'm like, at this point, I'm just going to provide it as a podcast. Making slide decks is not my strong suit. So that can often take longer. And I have a really busy summer. In fact, I'm going to end this episode on a high note. In just a few days from when this episode comes out, I'm going to be on an island in Hawaii. So that is one very good thing that's coming up. It does mean I am extra, extra busy this week trying to make sure everything is ready for me to go. I'm I'm recording two or three interviews for the podcast this week. Really looking forward to talking to a crypto and NFT compliance expert, to another industry expert that's been in fraud for a long time. Obviously, next Tuesday, I'm talking more with Don. Squeo on or Dominic Squeo on iGaming and online gambling, especially in the US. It's really growing and it's a vertical that not many fraud fighters have worked in before, but may be interested. There's been a lot of job postings lately. And then also, I know there are a lot of service providers that would love to know if their product would be a good fit for that industry. So or that vertical. So that's something that Don is going to be answering on Tuesday. Okay, guys, I am calling it a day or a night at this point. I really hope all this information was helpful. I hope you totally understand that I'm doing my best and I don't want to step on any toes. I just think it's important for someone to ask these questions. And I hope that it helps you prepare for these upcoming changes. I mean, it may feel like eight months is a long time, but I think it's eight months. I'm doing the math off the top of my head, but I actually think nine months. But at the same time, like it's going to happen fast. And we know that any kind of technology change It doesn't happen fast. So nine months isn't as slow as we might think. All right. I hope you're having a great day, even in spite of all of that information I just dumped on you. And I look forward to hearing your feedback, your thoughts. If you work for Visa, please come on the podcast. I'll say it again. And I, I would love to have you help answer these questions and help fill in any blanks of what I'm missing or other people in the industry are missing. Really, honestly, whenever these rules come out, we're just trying to put together the pieces. And especially when a high level rule comes out without all the details, we're trying to figure out how does that impact my business? What do I need to do? And all of that. So that's what I tried to provide today. Okay, guys, I hope you have a great weekend and I will talk to you soon. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.